Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts, I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. Jen, I just have to say to you, because we haven't really talked about it yet, mazel tov on Jen and Ben. <laughs> it's been pretty exciting for me, you know, <laughs> from, from one Jennifer Lynn to another. I feel like my work here is done. <laughs> so funny. You know, I honestly, it's it's like embarrassing. I don't really care about them as much as I pretend to on social media but it, I was genuinely touched by the Jennifer Lopez Ben Affleck wedding. Well, she also made, and I'm sure somebody else wrote it for her, but she made a really touching statement about the other people who were there when they were getting married, and that some the couple one was a male couple, and she really, I know she has a child who's non-binary. Yes, and yeah. it seems like J Lo's kind of like educated herself, and you know been accepting and supportive, which made me happy because, you know, the worst celebrity interview I ever did was with JLo. I, you know what, you've said this before, JLo has affected both of our careers, but <laughs> I, I got fired because of JLo from Glamour because I, because whatever, age discrepancy, but you, but wait, tell me why was she the worst interview? I did. It was right before I got the job to do Lucky mm -hmm. and I got a call from Elle magazine to profile her. Mm -hmm. And she was just, it was when she was moving into a music career. So she wasn't huge yet. Okay. Um, but she was dating Puffy and pretending she wasn't with Puffy. Okay. Okay. And we were, she was going to go speak at a school somewhere in the Queens or the, or Queens or the Bronx. Okay. I think Queens. And I, we were in the car and at one point I, my mom was a jewelry designer and, and Jennifer Lopez had bought one of her pieces. So at one point I said, Oh, by the way. And I grabbed her arm. Oh, <laughs> you don't touch. You never touch the famous people. <laughs> the famous is cannot be touched. The famous is cannot be touched. So I touched her. So that got off. She showed no 
I mean, she didn't have to show warmth even. She was just not very respectful. Mm -hmm. She did the interview with me as she got a manicure. (laughs) And I just, I, 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 I went, it was at the Carlisle hotel. Mm -hmm. I went, um, to Zittimer Pharmacy, which is a fancy pharmacy on the Upper East Side, which is right next to the Carlisle, and bought like an $80 candle, then went home and took to bed for two days. Did you get a piece out of it? I got a piece. It wasn't, you know, I mean, it was just a standard celebrity profile. My worst celebrity, my worst celebrity interview was um, Molly Sims, who plucked her her mustache and chin hair during our interview. That no. Was, yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Just in the mirror, just, just plucking. I mean, God love them. God love them. I know it must be like being animal in a zoo. I, I, I can't even imagine what fame is like. I can't either, but they chose it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. They chose it. And, and even still, I think, you know, I mean, it's not, I don't know. I, I, I think it's not entirely fair to say they chose it. So they have to deal with it, but it, it does sound creepy. I mean, I was talking to a guy yesterday mm-hmm. um, who's in a band that one of these um, jam bands, a pretty successful jam band. Okay. And he was saying that the FBI actually has files on some of the people who stalk them. And they're not even like a huge band, but they're big enough. Like wow. they're, So the stalking is pretty creepy. Yeah, the stocking is, I mean, look, the whole thing is creepy. The whole thing is creepy. The whole the economy of celebrity is creepy and influencers and fame. And it's just, imagine having that many people thinking about you. Yep. Just like energetically being in the world. Like I have, I have not, I have not even, I have like a speck. I am like a flea in the kind of like fame that Jennifer Lopez has. But like, I was just telling you before we got on, I've been tussling with people on the internet with just like my minor public figureness. People have been coming at me and it's just weird because people find you people. I I don't understand the instinct to harass people you don't know. Like, I don't think I've ever even left like a bad Yelp review because I feel like, oh, well, maybe they were having a bad day. I don't know. Like, I don't, and also I just don't want to fuck with people. Yeah. I don't understand the instinct to reach out to people and try to make them feel bad. I don't understand the instinct to tell people you don't like their work, to tell them, to announce to them you're going to stop following them. I don't like why? Who gives a oh, shit? Oh, I know. I've gotten I've gotten a fair amount of that. So I like, know. It's yes. I think it's a, it's a certain type of person in a certain kind of mood. Yeah. And to, so who yeah. lashes out like that. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's not right. It's not it's not right and then imagine you're so famous and everybody is projecting like it just warps your brain. Like that's it. It does warp your brain. And as soon as you get very famous, you get everything for free. Yeah. People stop telling you the truth about yourself. Yeah. I was watching a video, I don't know why, on my phone, and it was of these fans standing in front of Justin Bieber's home. And his it must have been his apartment in New York. And they're going, can I have a hug? Can I have a hug? And Justin Bieber very calmly says to them, you know, you guys, I, I, I really appreciate your support, but this is where I live. This is where I have privacy. And it would really mean a lot to me if you guys stopped coming here. And the right. girl goes, can I have a hug? Oh, 
Well, it's like Tom, it's like, it's like Tom Hanks, the nicest man in the world. Had, mm-hmm. Did you see when? Yes, was, I saw that footage. When he was coming out of the restaurant with his wife and the people just swarmed them and she trips and he just looks at them. And he's like, back the fuck off. Yeah. And it's like they all have their phones out and we just have to get an image of Tom Hanks. And oh my God, I had this experience and I'm going to share it on social media. Imagine being the recipient of that. I can't. No, I can't either. Me neither. So I have compassion, but also I didn't even say anything clever about the Jennifer Lopez, Ben Affleck nuptials. I just put the pictures of them and wrote, this seems kind of nice. And I got (laughs) like, I, my, my Twitter, my tweet went viral. So, I mean, yeah. And it was, but it was also like, yeah, seems nice now. They'll be divorced in a year. It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, Yeah. So like, they'll have a good up. year. I'm still happy for them. Exactly. Exactly. I'm still happy for them. Um, what else is going on in your life? Well, I am on tour. Yes. With, you- with Paul and his students. We, the tour with John Anderson um, of Yes ends tonight, and then the tour with Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers starts tomorrow. Wait, for anybody who doesn't know, let's just explain because this is a con- continuity thing. Kim's boyfriend, you explain so that people know what you what this experience is. My boyfriend Paul um, is a music teacher. He teaches kids music. He founded School of Rock. And now he has something called the Paul Green Rock Academy, and it is an audition-only program for kids who are really serious about having a career in music. And um, they tour with these various, you know, artists, former arena rockers and things like that. And um, I go with them and ride on the tour bus and stay in crappy tour hotels, and it's super fun. Yeah, no, you're you're a tour wife. It's um, I, I am. It's I just I, as discussed many times. I do I love this later in life development for you because I <laughs> feel like it would have been such a different experience in like your teens or twenties, you know? Yeah. Than it is now. It's just it must be different. Um, do you what do you do when you go to a new city? What do you look for? Well, I haven't. I mean, it's you know, it makes going on tour makes you realize why rock stars do drugs because. It's late, late, late nights, mm-hmm. early mornings, and it's like you people just calibrate their bodies, you know, right. with drugs, right? Right. Because their clocks, their internal clocks, get so screwed up. So, you know, I, I like work. You know, I try to get work done when I can. Yeah. But yeah. I've discovered an amazing product. Bring it. Bring I have it to tell you to about. Me. Tell me. Downy wrinkle release. Okay. Okay. Yes. I was like, I got to get a steamer, a travel steamer to bring on this trip because my clothes are always all wrinkled from being in the suitcase. And so mm-hmm. I bought a steamer, but it, it was, and they, it was, it oh was my God, I thought you meant, I thought, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I thought you meant face wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Continue. <laughs> a clothing steamer <laughs> and the travel steamer I bought was pretty big. And I was like, I'm not, I I don't want to bring this. This is a drag. So I got this stuff, this stuff, Mm -hmm. and you spray it on your, you spray it on your clothes. Then you smooth, you know, you hang up a shirt or whatever Mm -hmm. you smooth, you get it just damp. Mm -hmm. You smooth the shirt out with your hands. And then when it dries in a few minutes, it is pretty unwrinkly. That's that's it's like, 
Yeah, that's a miracle product. I feel like it's a miracle travel product for sure. Yeah, I feel like that's I feel like that's really good. So you're on tour and we should explain that you've been on tour. So I've been doing I did a couple of interviews, including the one that is today's show solo, because you have been hard to track down for a whole hour um, with your with your with your movement and schedule, you've been hard to have a, a consistent Wi-Fi um, connection for that yes. long. And I did this interview today that we're that we're releasing today with a woman named Angela Garbus, who I've been following for years. And Angela writes about motherhood a lot. But what's interesting about her work is she's really expanding the definition of motherhood to caregiving and mm-hmm. to sort of like being more of a role we play, whether we're mothers or not. And the fact that raising children or caregiving for elderly is her, her book is called essential labor and it is essential to our society and should be treated as such. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had a, we had a whole, a whole conversation about that, that I think is pretty life affirming. And she's just a sort of, magnificent person I was really grateful to have on but I did miss you a lot (laughs) I I, I would be so scared to interview someone without you no it's weird it's weird to interview someone without you and like I kind of it's like it's like a phantom limb like there's Mm -hmm. like I'm just expecting you to like come in and chime in (laughs) something I'm like oh nope just me alone (laughs) so yeah let's get into it Our guest today is Angela Garbus. Angela is the author of the national bestseller, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change, which has been called a landmark and a lightning storm, a gift that will be passed hand to hand for years by the New Yorker. Her first book, Like a Mother, a book that I love, was an NPR best book of 2018, a finalist for the Washington State Book Award in nonfiction and deemed excellent by the New York Times. Angela's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Cut, New York, Bon Appetit, and featured on Fresh Air and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Welcome, Angela. Hi. Hi, Jen. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I am so excited to talk to you about this book, both as um, a mother myself, but as a person with a complicated relationship to mothering and my own mother. This book brought up a lot of really um, powerful things for me. Um, So first, I just want to say congratulations on this book. It's honestly, it's so beautiful. It's intimate, warm, expansive. It's the most courageous book about, about caregiving that I've ever read. Oh my God. That's so nice. Thank you. I I might start crying at some point. It's all right. Um, We could just, we'll just cry our way through this whole thing. I mean, Um, I am like primed for, there's something about this moment. I mean, obviously the last like two months since launching this book, like, as you mentioned, there's been a, a really amazing reception that I never could have anticipated. Very validating, but really like has been sort of dreamlike, but then it's all happening in this cultural moment where like I'm talking about this stuff, I wish I didn't have to, honestly. And then, I mean, I have to ground it in where I'm at, like in this particular yeah. day today, too. Like I, you know, I, I've been prepared for the fall of Roe. Like I've known this is coming for years, but I've actually been really taken aback by how, since it happened, the like the violence of it, the violence that we're yeah. living in, has really been destabilizing for me and pretty rage-inducing and. I honestly feel like at any moment when um, 
when I'm like moved to any emotion, I feel like it could go any way, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I feel like I could just break down and cry. I feel like I could have a like, you know, a sort of as someone who has struggled with anger issues throughout her life, I feel like I could just fucking go off. I don't yeah. really know. Like I feel really raw in this moment. Yeah. And um I don't know. And I maybe, you know, when you said that this is like a you know, this like sort of intimate and vulnerable book, like I felt that way writing it. I felt pretty free. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just turns out it's just continuing into this moment in my life. Well, I, well, that's, well, yeah. I mean, I found that really interesting because I, I think that you said, um, that you set out to write a history of caretaking and a book about social change, but at some point you must've realized, okay, I'm just going to tell my own story. Cause this book is a lot of memoir too, right? Yeah. How did, how did that, how did that choice happen creatively? I mean, it's such a, that's such a shift. Cause I know in writing memoir is just like, yeah. well, on top of all this other shit. You know? <laughs> no, if I thought, um, I mean, this question goes deep. So if, if I thought that I was writing a memoir, like I never would have written this book. Like I, there is something where, um, I don't know, like for me, I hate saying this, but it's true as of, person of color, as a woman of color, like, I, I know that my story has inherent value, but I'm very aware, like, in the market. Um, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not like, it's not a story that people want to hear. And I've, I have, it's, you know, my own sort of internalized racism and whiteness, and misogyny that is like, no one actually really cares about my story. Like, so a lot of my writing is like, I mean, I worked as a food writer. I did restaurant reviews. And I was always interested in telling people's stories. Um, but I've always had this feeling of, like, I could never write a memoir. My story would not be enough. Um, right. I have to have this element of, like, service journalism to it, something yeah. that's useful. Yep. Which, you know, honestly, like, I'm too old. I can't remake who I am, right? <laughs> but I, I sort of like that about my work. And I do like writing personal narrative. But personal narrative to me is it's a very interesting thing with writing and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like yeah. it's actually the more specific that you get that it feels more universal to people. Yeah. It's a weird trick that I've, I still can't totally wrap my mind around mind around. Yeah, no. And I, I, I hear you because I have, I wrote a career advice book that was really a memoir. <laughs> like it was, but I felt, I felt safer Exactly. hiding behind, you know, here's advice and here's, but really actually it's true. The more, the more, it's more honest, it's more specific, but it's more honest, right? It's yeah. like the more honest you are, the more people, exactly what you said, identify with the story because it's those, it's not hiding behind the tricks of service journalism, which is like right. not real at all for the most part, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've been assigned the thing and you're like, I'll figure out how to write about this. I know, you know what I mean? Every aspect that, of that, I'm always like, I mean, it's what you want. Exactly. <laughs> Here's what I think, but you should just do what you want. Um, I, totally. And writing yeah. a book that you want is the most terrifying thing yeah. possibly in the world and exposing yourself and being like, Oh, I, I think this is what I want to say. Yeah. Is just an, a revolutionary <laughs> act to be honest. So yeah, no, I mean, thank you. And I feel like that's what I did. I told my husband this the other day and I don't mean it to be dramatic, but I was like, I feel like this book saved me in a yeah. lot of ways. Like, and especially, I mean, I'm so glad to be 
talking to you for this podcast too, because I think I'm obsessed with middle age and the stage that I'm at in my life. Like, I feel like I wrote this book and I mean, I want to get to your actual question about like how this shift happened. But what I found was to start generally really that um, in writing about mothering, it was very humbling to realize like I could not write about mothering without really um, confronting how I was mothered and my own daughtering. You know, it's not a verb you hear very often, but I really had to examine that. Um, And I had to accept the ways in which I was mothered by someone who is just a person, a flawed human who could never give me all of the things that I needed and wanted. And I think I spent a lot of my 20s and like teenage years being really angry at my mother for that. Um, And not seeing that she was, you know, an immigrant from a new country who was so adaptable and just just surviving, just making it work and doing her best. Yeah. And I feel like I'm at this place where I, you know, my mother does not need me to forgive her, but like, I feel like I've gone through that process of forgiving her and finding peace like in that. And a lot of this book was really about, this was a lot of the surprises. I wrote a lot about the ways in which I have mothered myself. Yes. Um, yes. 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 In part and- because mothering myself leads me to being the person that actually then one, it makes me more of a whole person so I can be a happy person living a good life, but it also makes, it allows me to be the person who can show up for my children and mother yes. them in the way that I want to. Yes. And you expanded the definition. This is what this book does. This book expands the definition of motherhood it, or mothering, let's yeah. say. It expands that definition. And 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 just, just quickly, I, I had, my mother had me when she was a teenager and mm. was not prepared for this kind of situation. Yeah. And, and I have felt quite a vacuum in some ways around my own my own daughtering, just not, I didn't have enough. So when I became a a parent myself, I I really felt lost and I I really felt lost and also isolated. And Mm -hmm. And we're going to get get into all of these things because these are yeah. these. This is the core of this book because there's a couple of things you do. One, you expand mothering because I, what I've realized in the course of the last ten years of my life, but also in reading this book very specifically, which is why it touched me so much, is how much I've been mothered by other people. Like yeah. I have filled that up. You know, Kim mothers me. My editor mm. mothers me. My you know. My husband mothers me, you know what I mean? Like I I have been nurtured and mothered and thinking about it in that way expands it because a lot of our listeners are either, you know, past the point of active mothering or Mm -hmm. are not parents at all. And this book is relevant for everyone because we're thinking about mothering as caretaking and an essential role we play in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think of it as we mother ourselves all the time. Like I'm, you know, before I was talking about the ways that like, that I wanted to be nurtured, that my, my own mother wasn't able to do that. But I'm also just thinking about the very base to me. Mothering is like, I get up, I listen to my body. I smell my body. I'm like, Oh, I need a shower. Um, (laughs) My body says like, I need, you know, yogurt for breakfast, like feeding yourself that basic stuff, which is the work that never goes away. We can never outsource that stuff. Just keeping your human body alive, that's mothering. 
And people, I think it's also very human. Like American culture wants to like beat it out of us and tell us that we don't need other people. And it's like, it's a waste of our time to care for people, especially people who aren't related to us. Right. But we really like, I think a lot of us like showing up for other people and sometimes can show up for other people more than we are able to ourselves. Yes. But I think that's a very natural urge. And I just think about how, I mean, I am 44 years old. And I didn't get here on my own. None of us gets here on our own, right? And it's a combination. For some people, it's parents. um, It's mothers. It's fathers. It's aunties. It's grandparents. It's chosen family. It's a really wonderful teacher that you had. It's someone who mentored you, right? There are people in your life, and we all take part in this. And I, yeah, yeah, I want to expand that. And I want to celebrate it because I think that care work and mothering um, is really the only real work that people have to do as humans. Oh, wait, talk more about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Keeping yourself alive and cared for, keeping your people alive and cared for, what else is there, right? Like, that's the real work. It's the work that makes anything else we do in the world possible, right? And so I think that is like, that's what we need to be talking about. It is hard work. And in America, it is really hard work because we have privatized human rights. So we don't guarantee health care. We don't guarantee family leave. We don't guarantee affordable child care. We don't guarantee education, right? Other countries guarantee this, right? Like right. I believe that these are all things that we deserve simply because we are born. Yeah. Right? And yeah. doing all of that stuff and keeping ourselves alive in this country is harder than it needs to be. And it's much harder for some people, you know, specifically black and brown people than it is for white people. And so I want us to talk about that as work, you know, like that is, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, if I'm really going to go for it, which I will, I think that we should call out (laughs) a universal basic income to acknowledge that staying alive takes effort. And in this country, it takes money. And I think we should guarantee a very, just a basic life for people, just a floor, a basic floor, You know, it doesn't stop people from being ambitious. It won't stop people from making six figures or having their Tesla, whatever it is they need, right? Right. Or want. Um, But it just means that, like, someone who wants to, you know, like, take care of their kids and make some art can do that too, right? Right. (laughs) Like, and have a nice life. Right. Right. Uh, So... Is it is the reason you expanded this definition? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of reasons for this, but one yeah. thing I saw you say, and I, I've I felt this similarly in my own career in different ways, is that you'd already written a book about motherhood, right? Yeah. And you didn't necessarily want to write a second one because then you're gonna be in this sort of like mommy writer right, right zone, yeah. right? How yeah. did you reconcile that? So I mean, again, as I mentioned, I was a food writer. So that I got to write a book at all about pregnancy and mothering was, it was like the opportunity came and I was like, well, I'm not going to say no. (laughs) If someone wants me to write a book proposal, like an agent's approaching me. Um, And so I wrote this book that, I mean, I think mothering and motherhood and being a mother is endlessly fascinating. I think it's the root of like everything in our culture. It's the beginning of every great story. It's life, right? But we sell it and discuss it as lifestyle. And I, you know, was... A participant in seeing how like the culture really makes it niche, really dismisses women's stories. And I just wasn't, I wasn't in the mood to be pigeonholed and like confined to this one place. Right. Um, 
And so I wasn't going to write another book about mothering. That was like my whole thing. I was going to write this book about bodies, right? Essays. And what happened, well, the pandemic happened and I wasn't able to, I was taking care of my girls and my original book deadline was July of 2020. And I was like, well, it's never going to fucking happen. Like in April, I was like, um, no way, not going to happen. Um, but you know, one of the things is I've been thinking a lot about, you know, wanting to get out of under that umbrella of like motherhood, but still like staying true to believing that it was important. Um, but also like a thing that really, so I wrote this book about pregnancy and it was called like a mother. And I tried to be really, I tried my best to be really inclusive of, you know, trans experience and understanding that we have limitations of gender. And as a 44 year old person, I feel like I'm still learning. Yes, totally. I got a lot of feedback from people. People wrote to me and I'm, I'm grateful to them. I mean, they wrote to me and they said, I think your book is really important and your book really means a lot to me, but I have to tell you as someone who does not identify as female or who does not identify as a mother, I found like your understanding really limited. I found like your use of gender, like pretty essentialist, you know? And, and I was like, that's hard to hear, but I was like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take that criticism. Like I, I know that that's true. And so when I was, when I decided, when I, had the idea for this book and was like, this is what I want to write about. I wanted to get away from mothering, but I'm like playing myself here because in the pandemic, it was so clear, like care work and mothering and the crisis and the way we devalue that was something I wanted to take on. I just doubled down on it. And I was like, you know, fuck it. People are going to say this is niche. I think this is universal. Yep. And um, I wanted to acknowledge that care work happens in community like the best sort of caring and mothering. I can't do it alone as a parent. I need my family. I need preschool teachers. I need babysitters. I need friends. Um, But also I heard those voices in my head of people being like, I want to be included. And, you know, I I was just like, it costs me nothing. Like the idea of being a mother has a very personal meaning to me and it's important to me. But using the word mothering doesn't take away from that experience for me. It just calls more people in. And, you know, especially as a woman of color, like I want everything I do to be as inclusive as possible. Um, yeah. And that's just really some, that's just something that's so important to me. And I certainly am going to fuck up along the way as I do it, but like, I want to be held accountable to people. I want to learn. I want to grow. And I want to show that there's like, that's what life is about. Like, I don't know everything. I definitely don't know everything. <laughs> all I do is learn and I'm humbled all the time. And so right. I wanted to like, I, I just want to like take people along. You know, I don't, I just really want to bring everyone as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you're writing this book and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring everybody along. I've taken the notes from my first book. It doesn't hurt me at all to be more expansive. And then let's go back. And then you're, and then you're like, oh, okay. But I'm going to tell the whole story of my life as well. Of my entire family. (laughs) Of my entire family. And I'm going to talk about my mom and I'm going to talk about how her parenting affected me and how her feelings about her own body and food and everything affected me. Okay, so let's talk. Okay, so yeah, let's go back to the original question. (laughs) I'm grateful for this. So so I was like, la, 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 I'm writing a history of caregiving in America, <laughs> like how we got to this place. I mean, I can show you the proposal that I wrote. It had nothing to do with my family. Oh right. My and so, but so my editor who I love, Julie Will, who was the editor of my first book, she was like, you need a narrative arc. She was like, so the first half of the book is going to be a history of caregiving in America. How do we get to this place in the pandemic 
where we rely on like an invaluable workforce of black and brown women mainly to do this caregiving work, but we, we don't pay them and we don't value this. Like, how did we get here? Um, right. And then the second half of the book is more forward looking. But so, so I was in this place where I got my marching orders from my editor and I spent a month like totally paralyzed. I was like, right. I have no idea how to do this. Like, this is a very complex and big topic. And I also know the reason why we don't value care work and expect it, um, you know, for free or for poverty wages from black women is because of slavery in America. Right. You know, the home right. has always been a site of work for black women in this country. And so I was like, how do I deal with this? Because it's really important to reckon with that. But I rely on personal narrative generally, and that's not my story to tell. And I was like, I can be really, I can be as inclusive as inclusive as possible. I can be as thoughtful as possible. But like, I felt really intimidated taking that on. And so I was m mostly just like swimming in anxiety and totally paralyzed and unable to write anything. And then there was a statistic that came out in COVID that really was just, it, it changed everything. Mm -hmm. And the statistic was that Filipinx nurses are 4% of the nursing workforce in America. Okay. And they are 34% of COVID-related nursing deaths. Okay. So, I mean, that's a huge huge discrepancy, you know, and we saw how people of color were dying disproportionately. And yep. so this, um, as a Filipina person, I always feel like we don't talk enough about Filipinos. I feel like we're the like Rodney Dangerfields of the Asian Americans. <laughs> like we don't really like, you know, like we're just not really, we don't talk about it as much. And I feel like our history is not as well known. And so when I heard that statistic, my mom is a nurse yeah. and she took care of dying. She, could, she was a hospice nurse who took care of people in like end stages of life. And I read that statistic and it's like, it will never leave me. I mean, I was like, this could be my mother. Yeah. Like this could be many people I know, actually, you know, like I think a lot of people have had experience with Filipina nurses, especially, you know, in Southern California. Like yep. that's definitely, um, we're, we are here. Like my people are around, like that's a big part of the Filipina American diaspora. Um, and then I kind of was like, wait a second, like, this literally could be my mother, like, what's the story here? And it made me question, like, oh, okay, so my parents came over um, in 1970, and it was after the United States Immigration Act of 1965, which lifted quotas for, like, at this, up until this point, America was like, we don't want people from Asia, you know, and we definitely don't want people from the Philippines. It was a very limited number of visas that they allowed. Okay. But there was a health worker shortage and a nursing shortage. And so they were like, actually, we're going to allow highly skilled immigrants to come over. And those are my parents. My mother was a nursing, like was a nurse. My father, who was the first person in his family to go to college, was a doctor. And the reason why my parents are healthcare professionals, it goes back even further. It is because of American colonialism. So okay. a lot of people don't know this, but the Philippines was an American colony for the first half of the 20th century. And one of the things that they did is they established public education systems similar to America where everyone learned English. So my parents speak English fluently and they also, the U.S. government established nursing schools and medical schools. And they said it was a way of providing economic opportunity. 
for Filipinos, which is yes, true. But amongst themselves, U.S. government officials also talked about how doing this was a way of sanitizing a backwards population Uh. of people who were inherently diseased and inherently dirty and primitive. You know, that Rudyard Kipling poem, um, The White Man's Burden, that's written about the Philippines, right? Like it's about civilizing little brown brothers. And so this is the history that I have always sort of been aware of, but never really had dug into. Yeah. And that's when, when I, when all of this kind of happened within like a week when I saw this statistic and then I just started doing this dive into like the history. And that's when I was like, okay, now I'm cooking with gas. Like this book, I don't have to write about my ancestors were not enslaved and I don't have to write about that because what happened to my family is different than what happened to African-American families. It's different than what happened to Latinx families, but it is the exact same forces. It's colonialism, it's capitalism, it's white supremacy, it's exploitation. And those forces are the same. And our experiences may be different, but I was like, I can tell the story and I can tell it through my family. And it's a story that, you know, in some way, like, I mean, I wrote this book in seven months, which is insanity. Amazing. Um, but, but honestly, Jen, it's like, I wrote it because I've, I've been trying to write this book my whole life. Yeah. Like, and yeah. that's why it's like, there was like a momentum and an urgency and a primal kind of creativity that kicked in, which I thought through most of the pandemic was dead. And I had lost touch with as a creative yeah. person, but I was like, no, this is the urgency. This is what I, this is the story that I want to tell. And yeah. that's how it became a memoir. And I'm yeah. not trained in memoir. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so the process of writing it was a, was deeply emotional. There were times when I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Because yep. I was interviewing my parents. I was like trying to ask them about the effects of colonialism. And they were like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> why do you want to like ask these questions? Like, you have a really nice life. Like, why do you want to like criticize the United States, right? Like, why do you like... Right. It, it, it was really... Um, it was really hard. It was really hard, but it was also so gratifying. And I just feel so strongly like this is the book that I was meant to write. And I don't Uh, think I could have written it like 10 years ago. There's something about being the age that I'm at, like, and being in this desperate place in the pandemic where I was like, there are just no fucks given at this point. Like I, this is my story and this is me. And in writing it, I was like, oh, here she is. Here I am. Like, this is who I am at this point in my life. And I, feel no shame about that. I am, I feel pride and I want to celebrate that. Oh my God. I love that (laughs) so much because it's also just, it's exactly where you hope to be at this point in life. You know, this like midlife Mm. reset when it's like, okay, I better sort this shit out now. Like this is it. This is (laughs) this, this right here is the moment. (laughs) Let's take a quick break from some ads. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I'm excited for your next book. I mean, no pressure, and I'm going to wait. Right? But I think it's a lot about we get to this place in our lives where we're like, okay, like, I, I bought into some things, right? Yep. And, like, I want to reject those things. I also want to acknowledge that they got me to the place that I'm at. But to me, like, this is the place where you arrive at in middle age where you're like, okay, what really matters is, though, who am I now? And what do I want to live for? And who do I want to be going forward? Right? Like, and I feel I, like I've, I've decided this is what your book is all about. <laughs> it's a sort of reckoning. I mean, it is. It's a, re it's, yeah. it's a reckoning. But I mean, I think that's why we write first person books. I mean, we're, yeah. an, but they're so valuable. I couldn't have written my book 10 years ago, five years yeah. ago, even this making sense of your life and then sort of like literally closing the book. Mm. on a lot of things. Yeah. 
is such a profound feeling. The second that I, I, my book is in revisions, but the second that I, that I finished it, yeah, I felt a, an unbelievable sense of relief, unlike I'd ever huh. felt in my life, just like yeah. a palpable movement into another thing because ah. I, I told my story. Yeah, I told yeah. it the best I could. And I also felt that primal, but painful, incredibly yes. painful to excavate yeah. and to, and to get it right. And to be fair yeah, and, and to not write with malice and to, yeah. you know, all of those things, the responsibility of, of a memoir is something I took really seriously and, and yeah. something I really honored and valued. And I can tell that you do too, that gen- there's a lot Thank of generosity you. in this book, you know, because you've really thought it out and that's age, right? Yeah. That's it is, being it, and there's no, you can't, there's no substitute for that. No. Right. Like it's very, I had too much of an ego, you know, even like probably before I had kids probably yeah. ended like, ego, I mean, having children is a huge ego death, but I yeah. think I was on like my path there. Like yep. I was really, it was really important to me to be generous to my parents, to myself, but it was also very important to me to be accountable. Yes. And that's the thing that was in my head where I was like, I really need to be accountable. Like if I'm going to, I mean, when I gave my mother, I gave her a galley because I decided I didn't need her permission. Like I had kept them. I interviewed my parents. I fact checked with my parents. Right. I did a lot of hard, honest conversations with them and and they're not readers. They're not. Right. Um, I tried my best to explain. Right. But I was like, I don't need their permission. I'm not asking for their permission. I gave my mom a galley to read. Wow. And <laughs> he read it, and it was, it landed like an emotional bomb for her. Like there were a lot of tears um she was like you write this in the book she was like you say that we don't talk about things Filipinos don't talk about things she's like and then you went and put all of our things in a book and I was like you're right I'm a I'm a traitor I'm a massive traitor like all families <laughs> and you know it was it was really um it was really hard and I you know I wrote this chapter about pleasure and sex and yes. I was really frank about my own sex life and my mom was just like, what is the point of this? Like, what? Do you have your husband's permission? I was like, to write about his semi-hard dick? Yes. I don't need his permission, but I do have it, right? And she was like, why Why do you want to do this? And I was like, I want to do this because I want my, like, I was like, we're all here because of sex. And I want my daughters to have, like, frankly, a better sex life than I did up until I was like 30, right? Yeah. But I think you did. And it was so interesting because I was scared to write that stuff. And like, I'm looking at the, the person that I know I could probably hurt most in this world, you know, and I feel so secure in my like quote unquote creative and artistic vision, yeah. but I'm looking at her and it was really hard to explain to her, you know? And, and I was like, I also wrote a lot of, and she also read the book as like an indictment of her failures, oh. not as like me, that generosity that I appreciate you noting like she I get it like she wasn't in a place at the time like we have made we're still on a journey yeah you know and she ultimately was like they're your story I'm not going to tell you you can't do this she also was like but you can't expect me to ask any of my friends to read this book (laughs) (laughs) and she's come a long way since then but um but yeah no I mean I take it really seriously it's like I don't want to like it's that like first do no harm right like I don't want to hurt anyone and there were drafts where I definitely was like, why am I describing my mother this way or the way my dad said something? And I was like, that's a, that's me editorializing. And like, it really takes, it's, it's humbling. 
And you really have to be willing to like confront your own biases and like confront the part of you that is like bitter and a little bit ugly. Yes. And, like you really have to do all of that. And it's, it's hard. It's hard fucking work. It's hard fucking work. And the part of you that's like still a little child brat that's like, oh, totally. I want to set this right. (laughs) (laughs) For the let the record show, right? (laughs) I was mad. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, like, and I'm mad and I'm still like, I still, I get around my mother and I like, it's funny. It's like, I feel like she interacts with me sometimes where I'm like, how old do you think I am? Like, <laughs> but also it's like, I'm sure she thinks the same thing where I show up at her house and suddenly I'm like 22. Yes. I'm like rolling my eyes. Like, <laughs> yes. I am a grown ass yes. woman and I'm like, mom. <laughs> oh, this sort of infantilization that just happens at the threshold of my parents' home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's very powerful. This- and it's like, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so, and you know, it's happening and you still can't stop it. No, um, I know. <laughs> wait, I want to go back to what you were saying though. This, um, cause I, I haven't talked much about this and it made me so happy. I felt it in my body when you were like, when I finished, I felt this like leaf, like this feeling of like, this is behind and I'm going for, I don't, can you like talk some more about that? I, cause I, I feel something similar and I just love to hear more about that and dwell in that space for a minute. I mean, look, um, you know, my book is about trauma, a lot about trauma and about how trauma led me to workaholism. And Mm -hmm. it is a lot about, um, it's an addiction memoir really. And Uh it's about my addiction to work. And so I am re- reframing and reconsidering mm-hmm. everything I thought about work and working and achievement and accomplishment, all yeah. of that, um, which is a lot, right? Because you're, you're yeah. writing a lot and also ex- exposing your trauma and having it not be trauma porn is like a very, right, right, like, right. how do I do this and not traumatize yeah. the reader and whatever. Yeah. And it was so hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> It was so hard. Like I developed all sorts of like physical ailments as I was writing it. Uh-huh. I I abandoned my family for a month because I was so yeah. lost in it. I at one yeah. point said to my husband, I need to leave you for a month. I have to. I'm not going to be able to finish this. I yeah. it needs to be that internal. And I went to a cabin in Iceland. Like I it was like it was like it had to be that severe. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um and I felt even if no one ever read this book or even if no one reads this when it comes out, I knew I had done it for me, which was the first time I had ever really thought about work for me and not to please others, not to be a good girl, not, you know, for anything. And it was that, which I think men feel a lot, like straight, cis, you know, white men feel a lot. Mm. Yeah, this is for me. They sort of squash buckle like in the places, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my whole life- Because they're entitled, they they grow up and feeling entitled to be themselves at all points, you know? Yes. Which I'm like, in a way I'm like, that's fine. That's I just great. want all of us to have that feeling too. <laughs> and I really yes. just was like, I love what you said about permission because I didn't ask for permission. I mean, my parents mm. haven't seen my book yet and I'm going to wait until it's a little further along and then yeah. I want to have a conversation with them, but before it's locked and, you know, all of that. Yeah. But that accomplishment, taking the big swing that you were always afraid to take, I hid in my work so much. 
even in, I mean, I hid as a manager. I hid because I was afraid to be too creative. I, I hid because I thought my stories weren't compelling enough. I hid, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'll, I'll write about a pair of jeans, but really it's about, you know, this fucked up thing that happened when I was 17. I was always uh-huh. using devices and always hiding. Mm-hmm. And to stop doing that for a sustained project. And I also wrote my book in about seven months and it was like a bullet because it was just like, this has to happen. This is just it. And that moment that you did it, I was just like, I don't know if I've ever felt that level of satisfaction. Like, I think it was better than any sex I've had. Like, (laughs) You know what? So, I mean, I, what I hear, and there's a lot that you just said that I relate to that there's similarities what I hear and what I, how I describe this is like, I'm looking at you through my Zencaster screen. Um, <laughs> you're free. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. It's like getting free. Right. And that is how I felt. Like I, in, for me, like my children are young, they're seven and they're four. So they were right. like six and six and three when I was writing this book and I couldn't get away for one month, but the book got done because my husband, um, like he was like, pull up your Google calendar. And we sat down and from like April to October, he was like, every three weeks, you're going to go away. You're going to go away for a week. Um, you can go for up to a week, but you need to go away for a minimum of like three or four days. And I'm telling you, like, I've got this, like, this is my turn to wow. like, to do this. And um, I mean, like, fucking bless him. Shout out Will Pitts. Like I couldn't have done it without him. And I was like, initially I was hesitant because I think the pandemic also conditioned me to being like, no, 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 I couldn't possibly go away. Yes. But the thing is, once I started going, I got better at it. And I fully had to, I mean, I'm in the middle of a moment here in my life being back at home post tour where I'm like, oh, I got this book done because to a certain extent I have checked out from my family. Yes. Yes. And that's what was necessary to do my work. Yes. And every week that I went away, I got better at it. And there were some weeks where I was scheduled to go away for like the full seven days. And I came back after like four because not because I missed them, not because I felt guilty, but because I knew it would be that much harder for me to come back at the end of the week. Like I wouldn't want to. And that's the thing that I, you know, there's a part of me that does feel a little bit of guilt about that. But hearing you talk about it, it was like, no, like, this is what the work requires. This is what it requires of me. And the other thing that I want to say is that, you know, this is my second book, and I had no idea what was going to happen with it. And I just felt like, again, as I described, like, I've never felt so free. Like, I decided I was going to write about my Filipino family. And I was not going to there was there is not one explanatory comma in this book. Right? right? Tagalog words show up, dishes show up. I do not explain what they are. I've been explaining myself to white people my whole life. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing yeah. it this time around. And if no one reads it, except for someone like me, because this is the book that I would have wanted. This is right. for like Pinay women. This is for first gen Pinay women. It's really for myself. And I had to, I had this talk with my husband where I said like, you know, there's a joke about like the second book curse or whatever. Like people don't like, they're not, it's not gonna be as good. And I was like, I don't know what is going to happen with this book. And I need to be really clear about what success is for me. Yes. And I was like, success to me with two children under seven during the pandemic is that I fucking wrote this book in the first place. Yes. And I feel so proud of what I wrote. I stand by it. 
I know, I know it's all its flaws. And <laughs> I'm not going to get started on that. But I was like, no, I did it. And this is me. And what you said there, like, there's just no replacement for that. There's nothing. And there's it is nothing. like the greatest feeling I've ever had. I feel very free. And the strange thing is that it's like the reception for the book has been a thing I didn't anticipate. And before I would have been like, I would have like four years ago, when my, if this had happened with my first book, I would have been like, you know, it's amazing, but it's like, I don't need it. Like, it's incredible. But no, it would have like warped me. And yeah. this time around, I just feel so like, it's just gravy. It's yeah. truly gravy. I'm yeah. also like, bathe me in gravy, bitch. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. But I also like in the end, like the thing that matters to me most is the thing that no one sees. Yes. It's the thing that's like, I talked about it with my therapist. I made a long-term plan for my mental health before book launch. And I was like, this is like my walled city. Like yeah. what this means to me and what this book has been and what I have to say is like a thing that no one can touch. Yeah. Like I yeah. did the damn thing. I did it. You did the damn thing. And and I want to talk. And you did I, too. And I, I did too. But I, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about mothering and, and partnership. So one thing I didn't say was that when I took that month off, that was after I had done all the childcare, all the schooling. My husband wrote two books in the first year of the pandemic and he would go Damn. out to the garage at eight yeah. in the morning and he would, um, which is where his office is. It's very sad, but yeah. it's not nice, but it was fine. <laughs> it's, it's a way <laughs> Door. He, he would, he would go out like Mr. Brady with a briefcase to the garage yeah. at eight in the morning and then come in at, you know, six or seven at night to dinner on the table after I had done zoom school all day, all the yeah. laundry, all the cooking, whatever. And so I did this for a year plus and then was like, listen, the, yeah. and I had never asserted myself like this. And I was like, yeah, how are yeah. they going to live without me for a month? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I stole it. I was like, I found, I found a, a cheap writer's residency in Iceland where I could get like a cabin for $600 for the month. And I just was like, that's it. Right. Filing this way. Okay. I, so I, I, I stole it because I knew I had to, and it was important to me. Yeah. And I had not put myself first the entire pandemic. Right. Yeah. So what I want to talk about is I think that, um, when we're thinking about partnership and especially in, you know, cis heteronormative monogamous relationships with our romantic partners, it's often unbalanced. The caregiving is often unbalanced. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. it, and it can foster so much resentment. What do you think? Cause you write about this. So I'm, I'm leading you. I know, I know what you're going to say. I want you to talk about how you think we create better systems because this resentment, you know, it makes you forget your love for your partner. You know, it may, it's like yeah. so hard to work this stuff out. And I, you know, I have a very, I have a very good partner in a lot of ways, but yeah. I still wind up doing more of the work because I see more of the work than he does. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could turn off the part of me that is like constantly monitoring, like, are the, are the, is the seat of those pants getting threadbare? Like, yes. who's thinking about the next size, right? Like when we talk about making, like we have, I've had to let go of a lot of things. Like there is a term that it's the first time I encountered it. Cause I hate everything to do with like mommy wars, mommy yes. uh, influencers. Yes. Like I just don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Like that's not what's interesting to me about motherhood and parenting and mothering and that kind of work. But, um, you know, there's this thing called maternal gatekeeping. I don't know if you've ever heard this. No, no. And as someone who used to, I literally used to like, my husband would put in dishes in the dishwasher and I'd be like, I'm sorry, that's not how you load a dishwasher. <laughs> like, and I would like redo it, right? And it was very like, 
I know how to do this stuff better. But like that kind of maternal gatekeeping, like I'll just do it myself, which is like fucking martyrdom. And I saw my mother do that, you know, and like, and I was like, I don't want to live like this. (laughs) And so it's been like sort of a journey. And I think the pandemic also for me was like, I did more of the caretaking. But when my husband was like, let me do this stuff, I got to a point and it was, you know, I was like depressed. I was clinically depressed, you know, but I was just like, I have to let go because there's no way forward. Right. Like, so I've had to be like, I mean, now it's like, I I was going to say though, like that, that toll, like it's all that mental work in the mind. I think it starts in pregnancy. If you are like the birth parent of a child, because you're like, my life changed like a full 10 months before my husband's did. Like the baby was theoretical to him. Me, I was like, my boobs hurt. My stomach's expanding. Like I can feel my uterus up against my lungs. Like, you know, I was like, you don't understand what I'm going through. Right. Like, no. And even mentally, like quitting drinking, you know, and they're yeah, still able to drink and party and yeah. be normal with their friends. I mean, not necessarily party because we're old, but you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. No, but also like, could I like, should I have the sushi? Like everything, right? Yes. Like yes. all of those kinds of things, even if you reject them, like the messages are so pervasive and they've, the extent to which like even of, you know, like a, deeply feminist person like has internalized some of that stuff it's hard to confront yeah so there's I think that those the message is coming both from inside the house and from outside the house which is really hard um you know what I've had to do is realize like when I think about making dinner I'm thinking about it like 24 hours in advance or like that morning Whereas yeah. when my husband is making dinner, he's like, what do we have in the fridge at like 520? Yes. And I'm like, this is madness. Right? Like, yes. Like, yes. And that's stereotyping. But I think like that's that's the reality. Like that's how it is. And I have an incredible partner. And even then I'm like, what are you thinking about? Half yes. Like, yes. How? Yeah. how? <laughs> so one of the things that I do and I don't I don't have like there's and I should say this, like there's no fucking quick solution. There's right. no silver bullet. There's no thing. I think it is really talking about it is the number one step. Like I name the work that I am doing. Like I say, like, I've heard you say you're going to make this vaccination appointment for our daughter. I've heard you say it four days in a row. Has it happened? Because I'm at a point where I'm just going to do it if you don't do it. Right. Like, and he'll like, and he'll do it. And we talk, I mean, I also hate, there's an element, like when you commit to someone and again, or in like a monogamous cis, like, hetero like long-term relationship like it is it's very it's it's boring you spend time in like (laughs) logistical negotiations like if I knew that this is what marriage and having children would be like I I might not have done it like it's it's unglamorous it's just the stuff that's it's not sexy it's not it's not sexy so I think there's that so I I definitely think it's really about like I mean I, I sound it sounds so cheesy but it's like honest open communication before the resentment kicks in, right? Just to name it and to also be very clear and be like, I'm trying to tell you what I want and what I need. This is not personal. This is not me being mad at you. This is me preventing myself from being mad at you. I say this all the time to my husband. And so we have these like exchanges. You know, I was on book tour for the last month. I came back and he was like, I gotta be honest. He's like, I had it. I had it down for the last two weeks. You've been gone and I've been locked in with these girls and you come in and you're trying to like parent. And that's hard for me. And I was like, damn, okay. Because yeah. I feel that way. I felt that way about him when he would go away. And I had to yeah. be like, step back. Like, can my family live without me? Yeah, it turns out they can't, right? Yes. And that's like, so like a little bit of letting go of that. The other thing I want to say, though, is really, um, and this is a lot of what the book is about. Like, we are not meant 
if it feels like too much to cook three meals a day, seven days a week and keep your house clean and do the laundry, it's because it is too much. Yeah. Like no person can do all of that. Yeah. And so that's just like the domestic labor, but raising children and taking care of people, it's not something we're meant to do in isolation. We, right. It's not something I think about single parents all the time or unpartnered parents. I really have no idea how they do it because I can't do it with just my husband. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we hired an amazing woman named Olga and her team to come in and do a deep clean of our house the first time. Cause we're people who are like, we don't need that. We can do it ourselves, but they just cleaned our house and they were here for like five hours. And I was like, the house feels totally different. And like, we're in a place where we can afford that right now. But I just think about ways like that expansiveness, like calling people in, like, I just can't do family life without my partner, without my parents who live nearby, without like my friend Becca, without my friend Kate, without my friend Alex. I can't do it without our babysitter Penelope. Um, I can't, it's just, so I think part of it to counter that resentment and to counter that sort of tension is to make it a shared responsibility. Yeah. You know, like I have friends who don't have kids who like, they are very unbothered by taking care of my kids for like two hours. Yes. And I like cherish that freedom and they get something from that. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's, it's all the stuff of community building and decentering yourself and your ego and it's slow work, but I can't think of better work to be doing. No. And it is that it is asking yourself. Cause I now, I now have a 12 year old and mm-hmm. um, my sister who just moved across the country, but had been close to me for a while. And she had two small kids and a, a four, a five-year-old and a two-year-old, which is just madness, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Been and, there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I've been, I, I did a lot of caretaking of those kids, you know, watched them for four days by myself, you know, had them over for a full day. It just, ex- just a full exhaustion. Yeah. But I find myself more and more tracking where do, and I wouldn't have put it this way until reading your book, but where do I have the opportunity to help? Where do I have the opportunity to mother? Mm. Because I also equally miss those like very, that, that sort of like potent nurturing that happens when the babies, when they're babies, right? Once you have a 12 year old, they're like screaming at you and you know, it's like a different, (laughs) it's, it's a beautiful and wonderful challenge that I am up for, but it is different. And yeah. Because they're I like, have, a, you're like, I'm a whole person here now. I'm like, a whole person. Like, back, you have back to explain off everything. Yeah, exactly. Back <laughs> off. Let yeah. me individuate a little bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to cuddle with you. You know, like, yeah. And, <laughs> and so I've, I've, I've really sought those. I think that that's something we should be doing. Is thinking yeah. of ways if we're not actively parenting, mothering, thinking of ways, seeking out opportunities to be giving that kind of nurturing caretaking yeah. because it's such, it's so rewarding, even if mm-hmm. it's exhausting, but it's also perspective giving. Yeah. It's just another way to think about spending our time, you know, extra time that we have. I, it's something I've experienced. I, I wonder how you think about that because it's also community building, right? Like, yeah. Everybody yeah, likes to take care of their kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're talking about the same thing. And I think I'm interested in expanding it even more. I mean, I think about, we all have care energy. I, I want to say this because it, it's, it's human nature. We are social. 
and we are interdependent. Like we just are, right? Yeah. We all, everyone, whether they have children or not, like we're social and we are needful. We're humans. Yeah. And so I think about how much better our society would be if our care energy didn't get trapped at home. It gets trapped in the home. And also, even if you're like a single person living alone, you direct it a lot to yourself, right? But I don't know how to, sometimes I've thought about like, can we um, incentivize with tax breaks, like single people like volunteering at a daycare or like (laughs) taking care of children? How can we um, like, like going and hanging out at an old folks home, playing chess in the park, like that sort of um, intergenerational, um, even interspecial, right? Like go volunteer at your community garden, right? Like go fought people, foster animals, right? All of that stuff I see as being related, right? Like I, I will still value people over, you know, like an environmental cause or an animal. It's true. I, you know, like people are more important to me, but all of that stuff is life and we're like tied together. And I think that everyone has some care energy that they want to give and it's very rewarding. And I think one of the tricky things is that it's, you don't feel, it's really hard to describe that, um, the, that emotional psychological reward, that like warm, fuzzy feeling, like yeah. it can't be like packaged, right? It has no monetary value. And so I think it's, it's a hard sell sometimes, but I think once people start engaging in that, it feels so good. And that idea of interdependence, that interdependence, you know, I, I found early, I hated mommy groups when I was, when I was, Mm. when I first had my, my child, I did not belong to any of them. Um, my best, my best mom friend was a, was a gay dad. And I, Uh you know, and I, I, but I did feel isolated often because the communities were, I mean, they were just mostly in Brooklyn, at least they were like white and rich and not aligned with my Mm -hmm. values. And, you know, I didn't have a nanny and I probably could have used one. I could have afforded one, but I didn't like that whole, I didn't like the whole setup of it, you know? So we had a daycare and and that was, and that was great. And I loved our daycare, but I, I do think of feeling I wish that I had felt more like I could tap into a community that didn't feel so performative. I felt like the early motherhood felt so performative and I had such a hard time finding my, my community in that. And, and I think that it's because the, the way we think about it is so small. The way we think of community and early motherhood is so, so so narrow Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and thinking about it more expansively, like what you're talking about is such a, is so, so much, so much smarter. And, but also I, I did want to say something that, that you pointed out in your book that how much we have devalued caregiving and made that kind of labor invisible. And yeah. I didn't know this. I didn't know that, um, that, that, um, caregivers are, are live in poverty. I forget what the stat was, but it's like yeah, much more. Three- they're yeah. three times more likely to live in poverty than any other <laughs> any other worker. And that's just staggering. I mean, this these statistics are, I'm glad you brought this up because I was, I knew it, but I didn't, I had not seen the figures. Yeah. And they're really, I mean, I felt ashamed, like, as a country, like, as, as an yeah. individual, you know, like, we paid the, you know, the woman, we did a nanny share when my oldest daughter was a baby and we like each of the families paid the caregiver like a minimum of $15 an hour and we 
gave her raises. But, but anyway, like, and that was each of us for the hours that she was working. But so, but yeah, let's talk about these statistics. So, you know, the median wage for any industry, the median wage for any worker in America is like close to $20 an hour, which is still not enough to live off of, but okay. So that's what it is. But for domestic workers, the median wage is closer to $12 an hour. There's a huge drop off. Yeah. And then the lowest median wage of any worker in America is a nanny. And that's $11.60. And then I think about it like this. So like, that's why I think a lot of these solutions though are like, they're so antithetical to how we live, but they're very, they're kind of simple in common sense, like to value care, right? It seems very obvious. Like, and I think about how the majority of people who do caregiving, hired caregivers are women of color and they are also mothers themselves. Yeah. So then I think about like, what if the woman that we had hired, Maria, who I love, and I just ran into her the other day at the Safeway, and it was like <laughs> tears, right? And my oldest daughter, who doesn't really remember her, was like, who is this lady? Like, why are you hugging her, right? But I, I mean, this woman is so important to me. But she brought her son, Bruce, <laughs> little three-year-old Bruce, like to take care of the kids every day. And we were like, of course you can bring your child. Because like, who's taking care of the caregiver's children, right? right. And so I think about that, like, I mean, I've, I I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like you might have felt a different type of way if you hired a nanny who could bring kids with her and yes. then your child has a baby and then, you know, your child has somebody else to play with and it's like a, it's a group thing. Like it doesn't have to be individualized. It doesn't all have to be private. We make no. everything private and it's really to our loss and detriment. Yes, that is you it. Know? It is that 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 weird thing, that weird, oh my God, we're just gonna hoard all this. We're just gonna hoard all this <laughs> this this energy and this this our whole we're gonna hoard our lives weirdly and keep them contained yeah. in these weird ways when really it's like I, I don't know if that's because of sh- fear and shame. I and think it's fear, it's shame. I think it's the also just what we've been conditioned to in America. And I think it's really important. I tell myself this all the time, like like, you know, like American, modern American life has been like, it's relatively recent invention, right? As we were seeing, like, democracy is an experiment. It's not going very well, right? Like in this country, right? Right. And so the way that people, this is not to romanticize or exoticize, but really like, all around the world, the way people lived for centuries was communally, like more community communally. Men were not responsible for being breadwinners. The home was not the sole provenance of women. Like everybody kind of did everything. Yeah. And there's, I want us to go back to that, you know, or, or, to, and I think the pandemic is really like the pods we formed, these different things are and mutual aid and little free libraries and community yeah. fridges. It's everyone saying, I can't do this alone. And I just, it's an opportunity to lean more into that because that's actually how we should be living. And I think people really, when pressed, will admit like it feels better. Yeah. It does feel better. It's it's inefficient, right? Like sometimes you're like, what am I doing? I'm still standing here talking to this neighbor for 20 minutes about their like ingrown toenail. But like, but that's just what you do right. sometimes. You just right. showing up for people means and then, you know, and then they're gonna give you like kale from their garden. Like it's just, you know, it's cool. It's life. Like it's it's so much more real. And it's so much more satisfying. And connected. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what do you still want to do? Mm. Uh, <laughs> in my life, God, there's so I I want to 
figure out how to make sure I never have to go to an office again to work. I think I'm on my way. Amen. Amen. Yes. Um, (laughs) I want to uh, make sure I want to raise like good, happy people who feel like they are enough and who will be like wonderful travel companions. I want to like, I want to go travel with my girls um, and my husband and just like sort of live free for like a year or something. We did that after we got married. And so I'd love to be able to do that with my girls. Um, I want to make sure that my parents are taken care of like in the, as they're getting older and towards the end of their life. And I don't know. I just want to have a good time. Awesome. Here for a good time, not for a long time. (laughs) That's right. That's it, man. That's it. Okay. All right. That's my thing. That's my my vibe. What about you? I want to just, um, I mean, I don't know, man. (laughs) I'm the worst interview because I'm always like, what about you? What do you think? (laughs) Um, I... I want to write more books. I mean, professionally, I want to write many more books. I would, I would like yeah. to, I just want to, I love it. Yeah. I want to keep doing, I want to tell some stories. I want to, mm-hmm. and I want to find space in my life to feel, to take the emphasis out of my brain and onto other people better. Mm. That is a massive goal. And, you know, I want to raise, yeah. I want to continue raising a, ethical, confident child. You know, I feel like it's the, it's the fear and the shame in children that, you know, brings us into the world and makes us go in ugly directions. So I'm really trying to work on that. Yeah. It's, it's really like, I'm not just saying this. I truly believe this, you know, raising children and having a relationship with small people is like some of the most important work we can be doing because it is really like, the health and future of our society, you know, like, I think, I mean, I, my daughters know so much more and and believe they are entitled and worthy of so much more that I had to, like, it took me years to figure that out. So. Oh yeah. When my kid, when my kid says to me, mom, I'm setting a boundary. (laughs) I'm like, what? My work here is done. Exactly. Exactly. I just am like, all right, uh, the conversation over. (laughs) fantastic um all right where can people find you angela um also they're going to find your book i'll link to it but where can they find you? wonderful thank you so much um it's it's pretty simple i'm angelagarbez.com for my website um i have this sub stack that i think i might start writing on i don't know i have to right now writing feels like violence to me being forced to write anything so i'm gonna I'm going to do that. But oh my also, God, is that not the truth? Is that not the like, fucking truth? I'm like, my agent was like, do you have ideas? I'm not putting pressure, but do you have ideas for another book? And I was like, listen, I have ideas, but I don't want to write anything for a year. <laughs> the well is dry. The well I need is some dry. Time. I'm taking all of August off. So, But the other place, the place that I think I'm actually more active, that's actually still feels fun to me is Instagram. And I'm just Angela Garbez on Instagram. And... I am actually, it turns out, quicker to respond to a DM than I am to an email. <laughs> but yeah, I and I, I love hearing from readers and I love like connecting with people, being out of my brain and just like feeling good and connecting. So, so yeah, feel free to find me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh my much God, for thank this. you. This was such a pleasure. I was looking forward to meeting you and talking to you, and this is even just like even better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, so I appreciate me, you so much. Me too. Me too. Me too. You. 
thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. It really makes a difference. Please don't give us bad reviews because we hate them and sometimes they make us cry. And also, we <laughs> also don't need to know if you are not going to follow the show anymore. We respectfully accept your absence. If you want to follow the show on social media, we're at EIF Podcast. We're also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're with a private Facebook group. We're also on LinkedIn. We have an email address at everything is fine, the podcast at gmail.com. You can find Kim on her blog, girls of a certain age.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the great Natalie Rivera. Thank you so much, Natalie. And we will be back next week. 